get this started. Welcome to Talkin' Fanfic. It's been a while. Welcome to episode 207. Uh, I am your host, Sarah, a.k.a. Story Shark 2005, a.k.a. Talkin' Fanfic. And with me is... Laura. Oh, I'm supposed to say. Oh, yes. Okay. I'm Laura, and I'm also known as Elise 51. I'm not nearly as mysterious and multi-layered as you, but... Oh, I'm not mysterious at all. My All of my life is spelled out on the internet, so... No! Uh, But Laura and I are here doing an episode after a long hiatus, um, and what's the first thing we should do here, Laura? Uh, I think the least uh, appreciated part of the show is that you're supposed to have alcohol in your hand, so I made sure to make that a reality today. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure, yeah. Oh, it's... What are you drinking, Sarah? It's foamy. I got some Dos Equis that you left in my fridge uh, oh, yesterday. It's the same thing. Oh, man. <laughs> Cheers, uh, buddy. Cheers. Mm. Oh, man. Well, I feel like uh, it's almost tradition. Um, maybe not tradition, but one. I think the first episode we did together, the first thing we talked about was baseball. Oh, yes, yes. And uh, this year's... Uh, World Series. Also, I think we talked about the Astros that episode. Oh, yeah, we did. We did. The cheating scandal. Yes, yes. I think that it just broke. Um, but the Astros yeah. were just in the World Series. They were. Uh, which is fine. Um, which is fine. So, so to me, I've made peace with it because uh, even though a lot of the same players remained in and it just goes to show you they didn't need to do it. They didn't need to cheat to win. So now they've got Dusty Baker as a manager, and there's no one more trustworthy in Major League Baseball almost. And those guys, their their on-the-road percentage is just as good as their home percentage. And it's just kind of a shame that they had to have their names tarnished like they did. But uh, they didn't quite pull it out against the Braves. Uh, I don't even know who I was rooting for, to be honest. But my Giants didn't make it, so that's why I was sad. When was the last time the Braves won? Is in the nine is like ninety six or something, yeah, something like that. That's how Greg Greg Maddox and Schmoltz and Glavin and uh, yeah, those the three headed monster, the three headed monster, the big three. Yep. Yes. Um, also in baseball news, one of your favorite people ever <gasps> retired. Don't bring it up, me, <laughs> Buster Posey. Buster Posey retired, man, and he did it right because he's going out. He had a great season. One of the great catchers uh, in modern baseball, and uh, wish him all the best. Did he spend his whole career with the Giants? Or- he did, his entire career with the Giants. That's very unusual. He, he was with San Francisco the whole time, drafted out of Florida, I think, but he's from, from Georgia. It's been very, very successful. Damn. He's yeah. good looking. He's nice. Yep. Great ass. A genuinely nice dude, yeah. That's uh, weird. Everyone says he's just a really upstanding guy, great leader, and he's got like four kids at home now, so he's got plenty to keep him busy. But well, cheers to Buster Posey. Cheers to Buster Posey. The last—it feels like the end of an era, but uh, you know, man. Well, this is a poor excuse for a baseball podcast, but we normally uh, do a little better with fan fiction. Um, I figured this whole episode can just kind of be. Uh, you and me catching up 
and <laughs> getting back on the bicycle. Also, we're going to talk about comic books. That's been a big part of your life lately. It's, uh, it's always a good thing to talk about with me, comic books. <laughs> well, let's start um, Let's start with what we've been doing lately. Um, as, a, as a reader, what's on your – is it too dangerous to click over to the old <laughs> history tab? You know, it's always dangerous, but uh, I'll be selective in what I share with what what, uh, what I reveal. Yeah, you don't have to read uh, the real fucked up stuff out loud. <laughs> uh, never admit that. I don't know. I've been reading kind of all over the place. Uh, but uh, we both recently read a Candle Beck piece because you've been vocal about your love for Candle Beck. So read the Elko County Adventure. Whenever I'm feeling like I don't know what to read, I'll go back and read some Wincest just because it's like a good old standby. Uh, Wincest in general or? Um... I'll, I'll like look through Wincest fix for whatever looks good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what? <laughs> it's almost um, people. I feel like people don't talk about Wincest anymore. But it's you know what? It's like a guilty pleasure. I would. I'm hoping that um, more people would admit to. Absolutely, yeah. I think yeah. after the Dean Cass stuff happened, it was like all the people <laughs> that felt a little weird about Wincest were like, "Oh, this is acceptable. Let's quickly jump ship," and <laughs> it became because I think um, oh. I was reading some blog post. I don't remember who it was from, but they were just talking about how in the early days before Cass was introduced in season four, how completely overwhelming and dominant Wincest was in the fandom. Um, Because, you know, you have two character show, two attractive dudes. Codependency. (laughs) Yes, intense codependent emotional relationship. Uh And... Uh, it was just like that was the entire fandom was Wincest. So then when Dean Cass came along, or when Castiel as a character was introduced and yeah. he had some chemistry with Dean, I don't know if it split the fandom in two, but it definitely gave people <laughs> something slightly less quote unquote problematic. Um, yeah, it's it's like technically less problematic. And you know what? Like the hints that they let slip through on the screen or the fun that they play with, I think, with the fans with, with the Destiel which I, I enjoy on the screen. I just, for some reason, I'm not as interested in it on the page of fanfic writers, but um, certainly Misha Collins is so much fun to watch, and, and it's, uh, Castiel's a very fun character. So still haven't finished that series. I'm too afraid to finish it. So Oh, well, it's too, it's too, there's too many episodes logistically. <laughs> no, I agree. I also find Wincess compelling, um, especially when written by an author like Candlebeck. You know, it's like one of those, like, I feel like the some of the most problematic pairings, you'd say problematic, whatever, but uh, the ones that do it well are, I think, usually spectacular because, I don't know, it like, it requires more work to make it work or something. Um, it's just not as easy to explain, but when you see something on the screen that pulls you and someone talented take, gets a hold of it and explores it in a more complicated way like Candlebeck does, then it can be some of the best fan fiction out there yeah absolutely uh and this one was fun too because it was a crossover with tremors i was not familiar with that but i i recently uh recommended it on my one of my uh, discord servers and someone said they were just blown away because that that was one of their favorite movies as a kid uh and they were very excited to read it so i'm waiting to hear what what she thinks but uh it's a it's a fun one yeah that's awesome so the Elko County Adventure, among many supernatural fics that she did, 
um, phenomenal writer. What she does with metaphor and imagery and uh, I don't know even know how to describe her writing. You have to check it out. Let's see. And then last night, I was listening, actually, to the latest episode of the Fanfic Maverick by my good buddy, <laughs> Beth. And she brings on an author who was uh, a Toy Story writer at some point. And actually, they don't discuss his Toy Story work, really, I don't think. I actually haven't finished that episode. But as soon as she mentioned Toy Story... I was like, oh, man, I wonder if there's any Andy Sid fic as, uh, as them as like grownups. And of course there is. I'm glad your mind went there because when someone says I'm in a Toy Story fan fiction, I just kind of uh, it's like, whoa, what's, uh, you know, what's the pairings in that world? Like? Dude, I know. Um, and it's like there's a couple similar fics I've read where they take a medium that's specifically meant for children and the characters are children and even right. cartoonish like Calvin and Hobbes and Charlie Brown. And I've looked up a couple of those fics. There's one I read, I don't remember, it's been forever, where Charlie grows up and uh, ends up connecting with Lucy and oh he, he like cool. <laughs> runs into her at like a corporate event or something and they end up having drinks and um, it's just like... That's- that's pretty amazing, actually. It is. And the same, I think I think the same author of the Toy Story fic wrote a Calvin and Hobbes where Calvin and Susie uh, interact as adults. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's oh just, gosh. yeah, it's interesting because it's like almost the, the characters are so unfamiliar in a way that it's almost original fiction, except yeah. that you get some references to, like, like with Sid and Andy, uh, I think Sid mentions at one point like a nightmare about toys coming to life. He does, he does, yes, yes. <laughs> and you get a little mention of um, the loose fence, the loose board yes. on the backyard yeah. fence. Yeah. Um, and just, you know, stuff like that. And, and so it's like uh, an outline of the world you knew, but it's a completely mature adult story of these reimagined characters. So, uh, yeah, anyway, I found a fic called... Um, let's see, Under the Table and Dreaming by Hollycomb. Yeah. And I sent it to okay. Laura. Yeah. And I haven't finished it yet. It's quite long. It's a, it's over 100,000. Um, you know, but like, so when you said you were reading Toy Story, I, you know, and I, I never like shame fandoms or whatever, but I was a little like, mm, I wonder what that's like picturing some sort of weird like <laughs> space cowboy was. like what's going on it's like oh no but as soon as you said it was Sid and Andy I was like ooh actually um and then I started reading it and it, it's like brilliant it's a, I, maybe one of the best written stories I I think I've read on AO3 I mean it's really it's it's amazing something about it I feel like this author I don't know Holly Combe um something about it just it reads so solid as far as just like, uh, you know, just purely on like a grammatical level and clean mm-hmm. in that way that feels yeah, professional. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's never clunky. Um, and it's not like stylistic in the way that you that calls attention to itself. But it has a lot of uh, emotional moments that are like really like you had said, it's not heavy handed ever. And yet it deals with all kinds of complicated feelings in a really kind of wonderful 
like mature, like quietly powerful. I don't know how to say it. But. Yeah, yeah. It's like really understated. And so that when you get these emotional moments, so like very vaguely, the story is uh, it starts out in Andy's point of view and it doesn't go into the toys at all. You know that Andy has toys. But it's mm-hmm. like him playing in his backyard, and he'll occasionally go over to Sid's backyard, who is exactly how you remember from the movie. He's like <laughs> poor, and he's like a little delinquent. I mean, he's yeah, poor, aggressive, um, yep, a bully, really. Yep, blowing stuff up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Fireworks. Yep. Like Andy goes over there just to kind of. He doesn't really understand why he likes playing with Sid, um, but he gets sort of bully yeah just sort of beat up or dominated in in a kid way it's like he's bored so he goes over there and he pretty much knows that it's just going to be aggressive and mean to him and this is when they're like little kids they're supposed to be like a year apart and it's just kind of dick and you know but but he keeps coming back you know and andy's like kind of all sweetness but there there it it feels real it's not just like some soft fluffy two-dimensional character I mean, but his core characters are, there's a kind of sweetness and empathy to him. Yeah. And Andy ends up moving away and you mm-hmm. see them get to middle school and Andy like makes, he's like a very, what you would think of as like a typical suburban kid and he makes friends and he joins the basketball team. And then you kind of catch up and see Sid, I think in either middle school or maybe it's high school. I can't remember, but Sid's like smoking weed and hanging out with the losers and burnouts, (laughs) total burnout. And they, he like, Oh, there's this cool scene where, yeah. Andy's like playing dungeons and dragons with his friends. And it's just the, the start of the breakup of his elementary school friend group where one of those Mm -hmm. kids becomes a burnout. One of them gets a girlfriend and Andy's kind of left. And he ends up wearing this Buzz Lightyear T-shirt to class, just I'll almost as a as a moment of rebellion to like uh, as something that he used to love. Yeah, he's like, I am who I am, and I'm going to show it to everyone. And he's like t- uh, 13 here, probably like a seventh or eighth grader. Like and he al- obviously ends up getting like laughed at because in middle school, all the whole point oh, yeah. is finding They're- a place of shelter in a friend group and not standing yeah. out. I think it's it's his first run-in with Sid since he moved. And yeah, Sid smells like weed, but he grabs Andy and he like takes the t-shirt off. He's laughing at him. Andy thinks he's going to like steal his t-shirt. Yeah, to humiliate him. And that like the hallway's empty. It's like right before class. So oh, yeah. it's not like in front of other people. It's kind of a, yeah. And he t- uh, turns the t-shirt inside out and puts it back on Andy and like cuts the tag off. Yeah. And it's just and he's like, dude, you better learn some survival skills or you're going to get eaten alive. And yeah, it's just a sweet moment where Sid helps Andy. And then from there they get through high school and Sid drops out and then uh the third chapter is like college and after, well, Andy goes to college. Um and it's just yeah, this like story of two boys who end up connecting across kind of a class type divide. Yeah. Yeah, it's so good. It's I think one of the things that's great about it is it like both both of them are really self-aware. Sid knows exactly what he looks like and what he looks like, you know, juxtaposed to Andy. And he knows like what would be the logical conclusion of their relationship, which is that Andy's going to wake up someday and be like I can do better. He's slumming it. 
Yeah, and he, you know, he's just like it's like all this self-loathing, but he's got just enough pride to like kind of cover it up um, for most of at least for most of the time until uh, he gets to a certain point with Andy, maybe. But yeah, like I said, I'm not done with it, but it's really fantastic. And yeah, it starts out in Andy's point of view, and then you get some Sid point of view, which is really wonderful. And it just goes to show you that you know, in any fandom, uh, an author can surprise you and make something really special and fantastic and uh i couldn't be more happy that you sent it to me for sure yeah well said why we keep reading fan fiction is that it keeps surprising us in the best ways yeah absolutely so i'll link that in the show notes again it's called under the table and dreaming by holly comb cool so that's a really a great one on both of our history list um i oh yes. i went down a cold flash hole <laughs> oh yeah don't call that <laughs> i know <laughs> uh which is cold flash is the pairing of uh captain cold and barry allen from the cw mm-hmm. show the flash which i've never seen that show but it's your typical uh grumpy villain paired up with your hopeful do-gooder hero so it's uh, a lot of fun. And I've read several stories by uh, several authors. One of my favorites is definitely, um, uh, let's see, Crimson One is good. Redhead's super popular, but there's uh, Sandrine Shaw. Um, she did a few, she has a bunch of Cold Flash and her stuff's awesome. I really like it. It's really sweet and um Her Captain Cold voice is awesome. So Sandrine Shaw's stuff is great. Um, Yeah, but that's kind of recent reading for me. Anything else on uh, your end? Um, Oh, there was one that I reread that was so good. Let me – it is – there was a J-Dick one that I read called um, Planet of L. It's by Jakowick, J-A-K-O-W-I-C. Um. And it's like it's like one of these where it's a trope done well. It's fake marriage, but there's a lot of world building in it. It's only about uh, 11,000 words, I think. This is not crazy long for a world building fix, so it's very kind of like efficient in the way that it it builds this um, kind of like sort of like a mission fix. But the premise is that Jason gets himself arrested for murder on this um, while on a diplomatic mission on another planet. Perfect. Um, Yes, and it's Dick's job to get him out of trouble, um, and it it involves a fake marriage plot, um, and it doesn't – they don't entirely resolve it. I think originally maybe there's a sequel plan because it's listed as part of a series, but it's the only work. But it's, like, it's extremely well written. Um, the dialogue is so great, and my favorite part about it is that both of them are – I've, like – when I wrecked it to someone, I said there were sharp edges. They keep the sharp edges on both of them. So a lot of times with that pairing, you get like grumpy Jason and kind of soft, fluffy Dick Grayson, who's just happy to be there basking in the love of his family or whatever. But it's like you can't forget he's Nightwing. Like Nightwing's a total badass, and, he, and he's a detective, and he's trained by Batman. So both of them get to be badass is kind of how I think about it. And um, it's just really, it's it's really great. It's a lot of fun. Um, it's humorous, but there's angst in it too. And uh, very, um, 
I don't know, vivid kind of uh, picture of this situation that they're in. Um, and it's, of course, it's part of a love story and them coming to understand each other. So that was a recent read for me that I and the, the author has at least a couple other, I think, um, J. Dick Fix, but um, has a few other works in other fandoms as well. Yeah, you uh, you should send that one to me on the WhatsApp chat. I can do that. <laughs> Laura and I have a very uh, active, ongoing WhatsApp chat where we're constantly texting each other fic links, pictures of Jensen Ackles, lots of that. It's usually from me. <laughs> yeah. Laura texts pictures of Jensen Ackles and Matt Bomer. I'm not really sure what... I think I'm a little more all over the place with the hot dudes that I send on our WhatsApp chat, but... Mm-hmm. Yes. It's a thirsty chat. I'm like a little ashamed about it, but I'm not ashamed enough to not send them. (laughs) I follow a few Tumblr accounts that just people that post pictures and gifts and I just share them with you. I mean, there's no one maybe more objectively good looking than Jensen Eccles. I like it blows my mind, kind of (laughs) like it makes me a little angry how good looking he is. But anyway. Uh, and even like twenty six year old Jen Snackles compared to what is it like forty? Better looking, yeah. Like even it's like aged so well. It's like yeah, mm. everyone says like a fine wine, I guess. But I mean, really, he's lost his softness a little bit, and he's just gotten more rugged. And you're like, he's oh. a man. <laughs> uh, yeah, he seems like a genuinely nice person. You think? Yeah, he does seem very cool. I mean, it's probably pretty nice, you know, easy to be nice when you're like rich and good looking. But you know, uh, and he can sing. Uh, he's got a wife and kids, and he's just a fucking. It's got to be something a, wrong with him. He's that bow-legged Texas boy. I think like there's hints too, like with recent cons, he's come a little more at at peace with all the kind of like Destiel obsession. And I've just read some like. Tumblr posts about their encounters with him and whereas he used to be kind of dismissive of it he's kind of more like you know it brings him joy if people can find what they want to find in that interaction and yada 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 um so i think he's uh kind of cooling off about that too because i guess he used to be kind of uh he didn't like to be asked about i don't know destiel or whatever yeah that's interesting and that that whole fandom is it's a I'm kind of glad I'm not in it. It's um, it almost seems like like a fiery relationship. I don't know what you call that between the the show itself and its fans, <laughs> where there's such intense love on both sides, and that yeah. leads to very passionate disagreements. And yeah. yeah, I haven't been in it, so I I don't know what um like Jensen and Jared have said in the past. I did watch their recent DenverCon panel when they were in Denver. And, you know, people were still pretty upset about how the finale ended up and uh, not just the finale episode, but the I think it was the episode before that where Cass, uh, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the last two episodes of Supernatural, I guess stop listening. Skip ahead 30 seconds. Um, Cass uh, dies, I guess, or is destroyed somehow, annihilated. And his Mm -hmm. last words to Dean are, I love you or something to that effect. And it's like the fans were kind of thrown a bone in that sense. I think the fans want confirmation from the writers as well as seemingly the actors that uh, Dean Cass was real and, you know, it was real love and 
I don't know what they want to be validated in some way, which I understand because mainstream television is like, I don't know if they've been teasing or not, but it, we just, you just never get homosexual love shown on mainstream television. And it's a show that's been running for 15 years and people love those characters. Um, somebody asked that at that panel, they asked the two of them what they thought of the romance between Dean and Cass and how that was written and did they know it was coming, something like that. And people were really pissed, I think, because they found Jared's comments, I think, especially very dismissive. Um, I could kind of see, like, why they thought that he was being dismissive. He kind of came around in the end and was like, it's up to interpretation. It is what you want it to be. But he was his point was kind of like, well, Cass is an angel. He's a he's a celestial being. And so it's almost a bigger love than a romantic love. It's not Dean and Cass wanting to take each other to bed. It's like a pure heavenly love which is true like Cass is an angel Um, and I think people forget that and it supernatural blurs those lines between humanity like what is the difference really like there's there's so um but it's yeah reading the human into the non-human right so it's like the father-son relationship between Lucifer and God or whatever like that's very humanized and so it's already confusing but I, I get Jared's point about it's like, well, really, it's not – it wouldn't be homosexual love because he's an, he's an angel. But the show kind of messes with those yeah. lines anyway. Well, I was going to say the whole point is like like we see the humanity of – oh, my gosh. Who's the king of hell? Uh, Crowley? Yeah, Crowley. We see the, the lost and then the potential humanity in Crowley. And a lot of the monsters too. I mean I think some episodes you, they're just killing monsters. But sometimes they run into these like morally gray areas where these monsters are – like they're monsters but they're – that you find the humanity in them, like, there's still that controversial moment where there's this, it's like seven-tailed fox, I, I forget the, the... Kitsune? Yeah, Kitsune, there's a Kitsune episode, and this woman who um, does not harm, it's like Sam uh, had run into the, her as a child when they were hunting, and she got away, but they killed her mom, but she was able to get away, and she didn't want to harm anyone, so Sam never told John or Dean about her. And then there's an encounter later in the present tense of the show. This is like season seven, maybe. So they bump into her again, and Sam says that, you know, she's not going to harm anyone. She did kill someone because her son is sick, and this is the only time they're going to, like, they have to eat a human heart or something like that. And she finds someone who's sick and, like, feeds their hearts. It doesn't really matter, but basically she did kill, but it was for her son, and Sam's very empathetic to it. And he seemingly convinces Dean, and then Dean returns without Sam, and he he kills her. And it's like, it is a disturbing scene. It's one of the darkest Dean moments that you get because he knows, you can kind of sense that he knows it's not clearly justified. It's justified enough for him that he thinks um, if she's killed, she might kill again, and I'm justified enough to end the problem. But anyway, but the audience, most audience members, I think, come away from it like, uh, wow, that was uh, that was kind of fucked up. And there's another episode where he gets on trial for it, and it's just it's one of those moments though where Dean has to realize that maybe he made a mistake, and that humanity is quite so cut and dry. So the show, my long-winded point is that like the show plays with the idea of humanity as a broader concept. So the argument that it can't be love because, in the sense that we define it, because uh, Cass isn't human is kind of that becomes kind of weak sauce because. Uh, I think the whole point of the show is to humanize Cass. But yeah. 
that's just like my opinion or whatever. <laughs> uh, I agree. I agree. Um, yes. So, yeah, Supernatural, sadly, 15 years, it is over. But I'm sure they'll come up with some way to make more money off of those characters and entertain us. Oh, for sure. Yep. Yeah. But you should watch that Denver Con uh, just because Jensen looks incredible. <laughs> I know he does. I've seen all the still photos and the gift sets. I know. I need to. I'll, I'll watch it for sure. It's kind of sad, too. I mean, obviously not the saddest thing about the whole um, shooting on the set of Rust. But Jensen, it's like the day or two before he yeah, goes to set. He's and so He's so excited about it. He's so excited about it. Yes. Anyway. Yeah. That was sad. It was sad. Uh, anyway. Put it mildly. But yep. moving on. Moving on, um, let's talk about, I think, what we've been writing. I, and we don't need yeah. to bore people too much, but just to kind of catch up between betwixt you and me and what we've been doing as in not podcasting. But we have been writing. Yes, we have. The last time we talked on here, I had been struggling to write, like at all. So now at this point, I've, I have a few um, listed uh, works. So I had one for the... J. Dick Summer Exchange. That was a lot of fun and very good for me. Yeah, is that a, a new event or has that been going on for a while? It's not the first year, I know that. But I don't know how long it's been going on. Yeah. But like over 100 works were submitted and it was just like, I wasn't initially like I signed up for it but I didn't know what I was going to do and it's just like you get assigned uh, to someone and you get to pick from like three prompts for them and you try to write something for them according to those prompts so at first i had trouble with it but then i ended up uh writing like a twenty thousand word uh story so um when given a deadline i actually apparently can produce yeah and that's a it's like a secret santa right so um yes yes yeah so you didn't know who was writing your prompts and correct it's not like a pairing off of one for another. Yeah, I get assigned someone that they don't know who is me, and then I had someone assigned to me, and I didn't know who it was. So it was a really good experience that the whole community is really friendly and um, very open and actually fairly active, too. So, Yeah, the fig is called Even the Losers, and I... Uh, I mean, I would say it is a jadic fic but it's more about the wayne family and the evolution of the wayne family yes it's and it's one reason why i had so much trouble initially that i knew it was for a jadic summer exchange but i i said like i it so the prompt had to do with the one that i picked that i felt that i could maybe do had to do with um a batman beyond setting and involving Terry, the only trouble with Batman Beyond for me is that in the show, um, one, Jason Todd doesn't really exist. And two, Bruce is a lonely, alienated person. None of his family are there. And it's why Terry has, an, you know, it's why the position's open. Because Bruce is retired because um, he couldn't do the job anymore. And uh, he doesn't have any family that um, want, is interested in the position. So Terry stumbles upon it, and that's how you get Batman Beyond. So I wasn't really interested in trying to make that work in the same way. And I just kind of began, I don't know, brainstorming. But what what came out of it really was um, a version of the Bat family that has somehow, uh, despite all of the difficulties um, that Bruce has with like interpersonal communication, um, but that he is 
for me, essentially still a good father. And he has managed to surround himself. It's like the paradox and Fabula Rossa writes somewhere about this, the paradox of DC universe's like loneliest kind of most uh, lone wolf character somehow happens to be the Potter familius of like the largest family in the DC universe. And, and, and the paradoxes of his character with that, that's something that I was really interested in. So I just started building my idea of uh, what the family would look like. And that ended up being kind of various points of view through time. And then Terry's actually a very minor character in it. Um, and then even the Jason and Dick interactions are somewhat marginal compared to looking at uh, just the interactions of the family as a whole. It skips around a little bit I, and it does not have everyone's point of view, but I took the ones that I felt I could kind of channel the best and tried to kind of interweave a few different points in time to, to make something make sense of the, the parts of canon that I like. There, there's so much Batman canon that you literally just have to pick and choose if you want a coherent story. I know that's all very vague, but um, it's like Bruce and his kids through time. And uh, Jason and Dick, you see them kind of at the beginning, and there are some interactions of them with some friction and coming to understand each other better. And then at the very end, I'm glad you're like, I think you should have something at the end with Jason and Dick. And I'm like, I think you're right because it's not really a J Dick fic uh, unless I do that. And that ended up some of my favorite parts are in that, that very last section, which you helped contribute to a little bit, a little bit, but uh, you have such a great handle, I think on, on all their voices, but um. Uh, would you mind if I took a couple of minutes and read an excerpt? Not at all. Not at all. Let's do that. Um, so this is from Even the Losers. And that uh, references a Tom Petty song. Not important, but the full lyrics are Even the Losers Get Lucky Sometimes. Ugh, I love that. Even the Losers Keep a Little Bit of Pride, They Get Lucky Sometimes. It's, yeah, one of my favorite Tom Petty songs. Too. Such a great lyric. Um, I wish I had an as nice of a reading voice as Beth from Fanfic Maverick. Yeah, and that she's cool excellent. fucking background music she You put, need to find some yeah. I'll try and put I'll try and find something. Um <clears throat> No, that'll actually ruin it. <laughs> okay, we'll ruin it. Yep. <laughs> okay. Here's a here's a excerpt here. As a young man, he had been alone so long, assumed he always would be. Alfred so necessary to what was left of Bruce's well-being, would be there until he couldn't anymore. Then the old premonition would be realized, and he'd be truly alone, the graying ghost of Wayne Manor. But then this delicate, precious thing happened. It creeps up on him. Years go by. It starts small, but it grows. It's moody and never gets enough sleep. It wars with itself bitterly at times. Sometimes it splinters open, raw like an ever unhealing wound, but it patches itself up again, slowly, painfully. This thing you see, it's battered and weary, abused and traumatized and stabbed and shot and blown up and beaten down again, over and over and over again. Somehow, it keeps picking itself back up. It picks a little boy up from an alleyway, takes him home, and refuses to ever give up on him. It falls from impossible heights, but refuses to break. It gets buried six feet deep 
and it scratches and claws and crawls up and out and screams its pain to the world. But it comes home again. It hunts down the truth, refuses to let go, to be dismissed or pushed aside or left behind or abandoned. It becomes its own hero, even when it's told to give up or stand down. It speaks up even when it's taught to be silent. It battles its own demons, its own hubris, its own hardness. It acknowledges its need to be loved. Nothing about it is perfect, but it's real and good and ultimately true of heart. It is his family, Bruce's family. And apparently, it's not done yet. Yay! So, yeah. uh, if you didn't notice that uh, it picks up a little boy from the alley, that's Bruce. That's Bruce. Uh, it uh, it falls from impossible heights, that's Dick. Gets mm-hmm. buried six feet deep, that's Jason. Hunts down the truth, refuses to let go, that's Tim Drake. Mm-hmm. Becomes its own hero, even when it's told to give up or sit down, or stand down. Ugh, that's Steph. Yeah. Speaks up, even when it's taught to be silent, that's Cass. And it battles its own demons, its own hubris, its own hardness. That's Damien. That's little Damien. I love that. <laughs> so you're personifying the family as a, a one thing, but then kind of splitting it up there. and Yeah, kind of as a unit. And that, like, I wrote that on the earlier end of the fic. That is a part of it that I, I am proud I wrote, and I think it came out well. And that was earlier on, but it helps me focus as to, you know what, actually, it's okay that it's not necessarily jason and dick centric i can still make them a part of it but right now where my interest is pulling me is the this idea of the family as a union and as kind of a rainbow personalities but a unit composed of many personalities and um and bruce's connections to each of them yeah that's wonderful i i loved that part so it's fun yeah that's what like the cool about the bat family is like you get many personalities and my favorite part is even though canon can be frustrating and various and, and contradictory or whatever if if you find you find the good parts and the good writing and and the core characteristics of each one and if you're kind of true to them and like like fabula ross was talking about if you think about them enough they become real for you and you you like that's what's primary was what my attempt my attempt to be a better writer but it's primary to me is to try to make the characterization you know real and not just you're not fitting a you're not fitting the characters to fit inside a trope or inside a theme. And like I know we've talked about before, like when I start a story, I usually don't know exactly where it's going to go. And what Fabulous says a lot is that that's because they haven't told you what they're going to do yet. But when you write, they'll tell you where they want to go. And sometimes it's surprising. And that's the coolest part. And I find the writing that I'm less happy with is when I feel that I've forced it a little bit. And the writing that I'm happiest with is when I don't feel like I've had to force it as much. And um, I think that's what's cool about a lot of the stuff you've done, too, is that it's very exploratory. Yeah. And actually, I was just reading, um, I think it was a Supernatural Roundtable interview with Candlebeck. She was talking about that, too. Somebody asked her how she plans her stories. She's like, I don't. (laughs) Yeah. Which first, it seems irresponsible. And you realize, no, 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 that's how it has to be. Entirely correct. And I think you can go back. I mean, plot, plot within fan. It's like there's a few different types of writing. And sometimes it's like a 5,000 word character study and plot. It kind of takes a backseat to characterization and exploration uh, internally within a character. 
or just the sheer aesthetic of the writing, you know, how it sounds kind of on the tongue. But uh, Mm -hmm. so but plot, you know, that's a that's a different type of writing. And that's it's not to say that you shouldn't plan it out. But it's almost like I think I've mentioned before that Neil Gaiman said something about editing is just going back and making it look like you knew what you were doing. So yeah, you go back and make it make sense. But it is important at some point to do that kind of exploring, walking through the woods, and you don't know quite where it's going or where you're going to come out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is some planning involved, and that means telling a coherent story, but allowing it to kind of move around where it wants to move around is, I think, the best kind. That's also why I tend to, even though I've not done that with this Tim Dammy one that I'm doing, but most of the time, I think, like you do, it's best to complete the thing before you start releasing it. And like if you start releasing it before it, it isn't written, you can go back and change it, but it might be a little more difficult to do. And then the audience has certain expectations and you feel a little more pressure. But like with even losers, like I remember like after I wrote a conversation between Jason and Tim on the phone, there's one early on, but there's one later on and it's their first interaction. And after I wrote that, I realized, Hey, I can, I can take that, from Tim's perspective, and I can put that early in the piece when you meet Tim and there will be a point of connection that you don't yet understand that will be resolved later in the piece. But I didn't, I mean, I didn't plan that when I was writing the earlier portion, but because I kept it in mind, you know, you, you like you said with Neil Gaiman, you edit it to make you look cleverer than you actually are. And uh, that's the cool, that's when it can be really cool. And you can have some really cool moments. Yeah. I love that. And I, I keep finding that's more and more true as I keep writing. Um, yeah, the quote I was thinking of is uh, we used in the second chapter of Midlife. It was mm. a Dante quote from the Divine Comedy. Uh, in the middle of the journey of our life, I came to myself within a dark wood where the straight way was lost. Ah, how hard a thing it is to tell what a wild and rough and stubborn wood this was, which in my thought renews the fear. So it's like remembering those like yeah. long, dark, confusing. Yeah, that's like the very beginning of uh, the Inferno. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so good. Really, that is really cool. It seems so long until we wrote that one. I know. Well, you, I, okay, I should say you, you really wrote that one, and then I added some portions to it, but that was uh, your baby. It was, uh, but I couldn't have done it without you, so Aww. thanks a lot. Um, hey, we wrote, we wrote something else together more recently, too. Ah, nice segue. Nice dissolve. <laughs> nice dissolve. <laughs> Spaceballs. Um, also in the DC universe, uh, you got interested in the Green Lanterns. Yeah, let's see. How did I? I mean, I've known about Lanterns a long time, so I read, like, I have a whole pile of comics that I read, and I've been mostly just soaking in the Bat family, but... Um, I don't know. At some point, I started picking up some Green Lantern Corps by Peter Tomasi. It's such a fun series, and um, his kind of main guy is Guy Gardner, a lot of the times anyway. But because the core, you don't need all the plot, but the core, more often uh, you see Guy and, and Kyle Rayner, and they're like this funny, odd couple. But um, yeah, I immediately had my fandom glasses on and thought, they're together. That's Space boyfriends. Space boyfriends. To me, the uh, the Green Lanterns have such nostalgia for me because 
I didn't collect comics when I was a kid. We we had a brief time where I think I bought some Flash comics, but yeah, I remember that. Our older brother was the one who really was the comic book fan, and he he loved Green Arrow, but he also loved Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. Yeah, both of them. So I remember he had a lot of Green Lantern comics, and um, yeah. Anyway, so Laura started picking up comics. We'll talk. We'll dig into that in a second. Um, but you kind of came to me with this idea with for a guy gardener Kyle Rayner fic and it's interesting because guy gardener is to for most people typically on the surface like the least likable green lantern can yeah. you tell tell us a little bit about guy guy gardener yes he's kind of the second earth lantern because if you know anything about green lantern hal jordan was and is probably still the most well-recognized Green Lantern from Space Sector 2814, which is where Earth resides in. And the Green Lanterns are like policemen of the galaxy. That's all you need to know of the universe. But Guy Gardner becomes the second one found, and he's actually initially in the old comics, just a backup. I don't remember. I have not thoroughly read all the old comics, but he's considered like when Abensor was the original owner of the Green Lantern ring of that sector, and he crashes on Earth. Apparently the Earth, the excuse me, the ring senses two people who are worthy of the ring, um, who had the ability to overcome great fear and have the requisite willpower to wear the ring. And those two people were Hal Jordan and Guy Gardner. And he crashed a little bit closer to Hal Jordan. So it's like this geographical thing that made Hal Jordan Earth's Green Lantern. And in the old comics, so this makes Guy like kind of literally like a redhead stepchild. <laughs> right that's that's a terrible but um he's i mean he is jealous he's angry he's a hothead he's a loud mouth he's obnoxious he's a sexist um even for the time like i was telling sarah that there's this great great series called justice league international and it was in the 80s and it's like this fun dysfunctional goofy version of the justice league um and and guy gardner's in it so he's always causing trouble and his interactions with Batman are like so funny, but it's the series in which uh, Bruce punches Guy Gardner to unconsciousness. And there's like this repetition within Guy Gardner's journey where you just see him hit in the head a lot. Um, uh, but, and there's all these like wonky, uh, crazy, weird plot lines in these old comics. Uh, he's given meta powers at a certain point and his body becomes a weapon and that's when he becomes a warrior but basically, he's just the the like the lesser desired uh, Green Lantern. Like, yes, he's got willpower um, and he can do the job, but he's just no Hal Jordan, and that's kind of like the theme of his life. And I think, um, like in the JLI, he has a romantic pairing with a character named Ice. Her name's Tora, and like he he thinks it's, he literally thinks it's a good idea to take her to a porno theater for a date. <sighs> and like these days, we you know, you'd make it like a joke, but he, even though it is a joke, he's like, well, no, but you didn't give it a chance. Like he would have enjoyed it if we had stayed longer. And of course she's like, no. So he's like, I mean, he's totally checked out as far as being able to read another person's just common sense. And that's all, um, old school comics, but there are some, I mean, there are some great moments too. And Chuck, Chuck Dixon has this uh, year one arc within Guy Gardner had his own series and there's a few issues there where they give us origin story. So that 
did bring into some more sympathy with him because they gave him an abusive father. Just kind of a nasty household. Um, but it sort of explained why he is the way he is. And then in the newer comics, to me, I mean, Jeff Johns, yes, but Peter Tomasi was a big figure in kind of revamping the character. And yes, he kind of retained his aggression and his anger, but also he's incredibly brave. Um, he's very much a member of the core and he teaches the uh, rookies and um, he's protective of, of them and of his fellow lanterns. And he's really like much more than Hal Jordan. He's uh, a team player in a way. I mean, they all have their issues with the guardians of the universe, which is sort of like their upper management, you could say. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Hal is always bucking authority and he is very much an individualist and he's got more problems with authority than just about any of the lanterns. And in that way, guy's a little more of a team player. Um, and they kind of soften some of his edges, but he is uh, still loudmouth. He just, he's a straight shooter. He's the least manipulative personality in all the Green Lantern Corps. And in that way, I think he's he can be very lovable. And uh, he has this great kind of bromance or odd couple thing with Kyle Rayner um, because they become partners and they move to Oa and open a bar together. And you're like, wow, that's really so much potential there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and the big thing for me was that Kyle Rayner's temporarily killed. And because it was so traumatic for Guy, his rage was to the point where he, that rage actually calls a red lantern ring, which you only get when you're incredibly angry and uh, to, to shake the universe enough to call a red, red ring to you. So I thought, Hey, that's cool. Um, I should write something gay about that. And <laughs> like that, that's what I did. And it was uh, a lot of fun and you helped out with it. And um, it was, uh, it's only about 6,000 words and uh, I'm not like totally happy with it, but I'm happy. I'm, I am happy with it. Um, it's just, it's a guy Gardner point of view. I feel like I'm still figuring out like who Kyle Rayner is and what kind of personality he is. Yeah. Um, but I'm hoping to keep exploring those characters. Yeah, it it's a ton of fun. Your your guy point of view is great. He's he's a lot of fun. He's just a very colorful character, very colorful language. Yeah, he is. And like he he <laughs> should be unlikable, right? But he's I think people who really like Guy Gardner find the you know, the the humanity behind uh, some of the less desirable behavior. Yeah, I think for various reasons and part of it's good and part of it's bad now we're like as a society extremely aware of um i don't know what boxes we're in if you're like a straight white mm -hmm. male or if you're a gay black woman or if you're non-binary whatever like we're becoming aware of how to look at ourselves and in that way we were kind of putting all these labels on ourselves which is part of that i you know without getting too political or anything is probably necessary it's a necessary step in like understanding who we are as human beings. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And I think that now looking at Guy Gardner, it's easy to look at him and go like, oh, he's a straight white male. And he's, he's basically just a white, an aggressive white cop is what some people would right. they, on the surface look at him as. Yeah. But yeah. with writers like Tomasi and of course with fan fiction, it's like that's the whole point of fan fiction is complicating what everyone else sees and making it something deeper and more interesting. Um, yes. Guy is certainly a character like that where you could look at him and think you understand him, but like any real human being, you don't actually understand someone until you walk a little bit in their shoes, understand where they come from. And, and you can still make, you know, moral judgments, but 
it's um i don't know with guy it's like definitely it, it was cool i think in that fic that you dug into his backstory and his complication as a character and also i think like one thing some people don't talk about is like all these labels we put on as far as like gender and and race and stuff like uh, the label of what it means to be beautiful and not beautiful. And Guy is definitely someone who, uh, he's just like kind of a brutish character. Like he's never. Yeah, he's a br- bruiser. He's a bruiser. And he's like, at least how you've written him and I think how I've contributed and how I see him is that he's very well aware that he's not a pretty boy like Kyle and Hal. Mm-hmm. There are some illustrators now that draw him more attractive, but especially in the older comics, he's like, <laughs> ugly. he's kind of ugly. Like, and he's got the t- terrible bowl cut. The, the bowl cut. And, you know, <laughs> like it or not, in, in our society, like, I think a lot of people with red hair feel like they're not held it's not, in. It's, it's not the default, maybe, for beauty or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I think for women, yeah. in some ways, I don't know why it's it's a more attractive trait. But for some reason, I think a lot of guys with red hair... We have, we have a very good friend uh, who's got red hair. It, it was, sort of was a joke that we would like call him ginger or whatever I, I don't think he liked that at all and i i look back at we do i don't that. know we this don't is, we don't do that anymore right now yeah and, and he's actually a very good looking guy but yeah, I, yeah, he, I think it's something i don't know why there's like jokes about a like redhead stepchild but it really is a thing and i think that's a big part of guy's character is a layer of self-loathing and an awareness that he is not attractive he doesn't find himself attractive he thinks he's ugly well and he's like number two to like hal jordan who's like you know he's got he's one of the most beautiful uh men in the dc universe probably he's like tall he's built he's and he's uh and he's a hero he's a jet pilot in real life he'd probably be too tall to fly jets honestly because there's actually yeah. like a height limit it's kind of funny but anyway you know he's a hero hero guy is like I like how Tomasi writes him because he does give him a layer of intelligence that you didn't see. And he actually is an excellent strategist and he has an instinct about how to handle people, people being very general there because he deals with aliens all the time. But in general, though, he is more of a, he puts his head down. It's like the football thing. He puts his head down and he finds the gap and he just kind of like bruises his way through. And uh, there actually is a really long history, weird history in the comics of him getting hit in the head, <laughs> um, which just seems kind of it's very fitting for the character. He just he gets the job done. It's not going to be as pretty as it will with like Kyle's an artist and his constructs are so like complicated and beautiful. In, in similar way, John Stewart, he, who's an architect, he's very thorough. John might be the most intelligent of all the lanterns. Yeah. So he thinks more with his head. Kyle's like the artist kind of and like Hal's the leader, the glorious leader and and yeah, guys more of the yeah, the bruiser. And there's a couple other earth lanterns that have been created since then, but uh those are the the kind of the core four I feel like I, I at least I'm drawn to. And it's interesting with the guy Kyle dynamic. It works well, I think, because Kyle, as an artist, is always looking for beauty in the world and every day. And he probably, mm-hmm. I think, in the in the stories that work, he sees something in Guy that maybe no one else does. Yeah, absolutely. And that wonderful because you wrote the scene where he actually draws Guy, and Guy's just like, yeah, you know, he does not react well because he doesn't know how to react when someone sees him in like a really nice, you know, actually aesthetically pleasing light. He's just like so thrown off by it that he his default setting is kind of to be a dick yeah Um, and he is a dick in that scene and i thought it was really well written yeah well it's hard to go wrong with the grumpy sunshine 
pairing. I know. That's what Fabula had commented. And it's absolutely true. I was concerned about because I'm like, well, shit, this is kind of similar to my Jay Dick obsession in a way. There are resonances between Jason and Guy Gardner that are kind of similar and resonances between Kyle and Dick. Um, but uh, they're actually quite different, I think. And uh, that will be my goal will be to make sure to uh, bring out what's individual about them. Yeah. Uh, you love to see it. Yes. <laughs> uh, let's see. We've talked a little bit about this. If you're in a comic book fandom, comic books as a genre or as a medium, it's different from like adapting from a book series or a movie. Because to be honest, with comic books, it's a serialized format. The canon, especially in DC, is incredibly confusing <laughs> not, not to say that comic book writing is bad but it's almost it can be it can sure. be um i don't know if it goes kind of one hand in the other but just about getting into comic books and why you would want to and what yeah. you've got them because there's a lot of writers i've found and we would just read dc comics a lot of those fans like they don't read any comics and they just have somehow for one reason or another come to the uh, fan fiction fandom and they've really liked the stories and the characterizations that fandom has built and then that's how fandom kind of builds off of itself and they find a story where they see that jason and that dick grayson and that bruce wayne or, and they build their own story based on those but they don't read the comics which is totally fine um i like to read the comics because i think that there's uh well they're just a lot of fun i love the art in comics and as much inconsistent and, and bad writing as you could find you do find writers that are a lot of fun and i think i i couldn't have stayed for me personally i could not have stayed interested in fan fiction if i didn't have comics but that's just the way i am um like jed winnick's under the hood is one of the the best graphic novels from dc that you can buy I think they've now published it as Under the Red Hood because of the movie that they made. But originally, the the um, comics arc in Batman and Detective Comics was called Under the Hood. But anyway, Jed Winnick's one of my favorite writers. Um, and his Jason Todd is what I try to stay somewhat close to. But fan fiction always gives you that sandbox in order to play in. And you can always pull out what you like and throw out what you don't like. And I'm very much a believer in that because that's kind of what comic book writers themselves do. But anyway, there's, you know, there's so many series, particularly with Batman. They they put out so many books, um, you know, over the years. I mean, I don't know how many thousand people have written Bruce Wayne. But that's another thing. The easiest and best argument against people who um, are critical of, you know, fan fiction portrayals because they're not canon. I mean, it is like, you know, how much like the canon itself is not some solid piece of, you know, untouchable like it it's it is so layered with so many people that have written their own versions of these characters like all they're doing as far as i'm concerned anyone who's not bob kane bill finger like anyone who's not those guys when they write bruce wayne that's fan fiction because they took a fictional character that they did not create and they wrote a story about it um so that whole argument about is it canon is it not canon is so dumb too because we've had batman a, we're not too far from a century of Batman. Um, and so that whole, I mean, there's so, you cannot make a consistent character 
through a thousand people writing over a hundred years or whatever. It's just not going to happen. So that's why I always use the tag Canon scrapped lovingly for parts because that's the only way to do it. Um, I feel like I'm rambling about, I don't, I can't even remember what the original question was exactly, but, uh, you know, it, Comics are a lot of fun, but I have most fun when I don't worry about them too much about what's consistent and what's not consistent, I guess. Yeah, I think like any source material that it it does make reading fan fiction maybe a richer experience. Um, But I think it is you're right that it is like the medium that is it's basically commercialized fan fiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and Jed Winnick, I remember you sent me a video where Jed Winnick himself says he basically says i'm just a paid fan fiction writer yeah that really endeared me to him too that he admitted that yeah it's nice to hear because it's like like in our fan fiction history episode we go into why copyright law exists and i think it should exist and so i don't think people should be making money off of fan fiction as as it is but yeah the comic book industry is such a unique weird medium that it's um kind of set itself up to it's like dc comics is a company and they own their own characters but they've been writing those same characters for decades and so many writers have put their fingers on those characters that yeah they're like batman is a shifting amalgamation of whoever is writing frank miller's batman is wildly different from anyone else's batman Um, yeah (laughs) yeah He's an asshole. No, um, <laughs> it is. It does seem to be an expensive habit, which sucks. Um, it did, yes, that's true. Yeah, we were gonna, like look at our pull list. I've kind of. It has become an obsession. I've got this great comic book shop that's like just a couple minutes from me, and I have like you can have a pull list. So, so monthly books that come in or whatever, um, they'll set them aside for you and you buy them. And um, it's I like. Like, I love the art. That's part of it. Um, and I love, uh, I don't know, I love owning them. I think it's a collection thing. And it is expensive. I should all send you a picture of, like, my pile of graphic novels, and you can post it if you want or not. But um, <laughs> I'm I'm getting quite the collection. And I'm not, I mean, you think about someone, because, like, I got really heavy into it probably just, like, a year ago or something. And I collected, I remember collecting uh, Peter David Supergirl as a kid. And I did collect a few, I think, um, well, some Nightwing. I remember I had started collecting some of Chuck Dixon's Nightwing, probably because he's really pretty on the covers. I'm honest with myself. (laughs) Um, but I had those and then I really got out of it and then just more, yeah, within the last year or so, uh, much more into it again. And just in my short amount of time, I own a few boxes of like at least four boxes, four short boxes of comic books, I'd say. And uh, I don't want to think about how much money I've spent. Um, yeah, you know, you don't you don't you know, think you about don't, that. You don't, too. But it is, to, to me, it's like my main source of inspiration. And I'll take little things from that I find in the comics or a panel, and like a whole story can come out of it. And I find that, for me, a lot more fun than just, um, I mean, I read all kinds of fan fiction, but that's the most fun for me. And how I feel like I'm original is that I find something in the source material and then I try to make it my own. And that's just how I tend to work. Yeah. And I think um, I saw you becoming a comic book collector and it just looked really fun. So Lauren, I don't live too far away, but we are in different towns. And I would say, I don't know, just in general, if you want to get into comics, find a local comic book shop 
L- L- your LCS, your local comic shop. Mm-hmm. And uh, she kind of explained it, but a pull list. I didn't know what that was. That is just a every comic book shop is going to have a subscription service. Well, probably, yeah. The, the good ones should not have a title minimum. So it's like if you every month want to have the issue pulled for that month in that series, they will pull it and hold it for you with the expectation that you're going to come in and buy it. And some some shops, it just it just makes it easier for them to buy and know what's going to sell. Um, mm-hmm. But some shops do have a title minimum. So my LCS has a six title minimum. So I don't have a pull list because I, I don't have six ongoing titles that I <laughs> want okay. to pay for. Um, I'm not that deep into it yet. I have like three series that I'm following. But um, yeah, just go check it out. And I would say also you can Google stuff like uh, a reading order. So if you're interested yeah. in Lex Luthor as a character, you can you can look up Lex Luthor reading order, and they will tell you exactly which series you know follow which series. And if you're getting into it, you're probably versus getting an ongoing title, you're probably going to pick up a couple trade paperbacks. Yeah, that's the best way to do it. Sure. Yeah, the the trades are just collected issues, so it's like a graphic novel form, and you can get the whole Doomsday War or what or Dark Side War, and you can get it all in one book and read it cover to cover. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's also really it probably ends up cheaper that way. I don't know, um, but anyway, yeah, it, yeah, it, it, it so. is fun. You you do. I like right now that I I don't have a pull list. I definitely feel like I'm not the cool kid in the comic book shop. Like I go in every couple weeks <laughs> no. and I'm like, hey, Dave, you know, but Dave doesn't know my name yet. Um, but he probably would if I had a pull list because you see the dudes coming <laughs> in and he's like, hey, Scott, got your issues right here. And he just pulls the bag out. And I'm like, fucking Scott, dude. Scott's cool. Uh, he's in the club. <laughs> um, but it just appeals to my sense of I like local business. And it does, you know, it is an investment. So you have to not spend your money uh, with Jeff Bezos or something and, you know, set it aside and irresponsibly spend it at the comic book shop. But yeah. your taxes stay local. You're paying somebody yeah. to locally to have a job. And yep, it's yep. just all good stuff. So good stuff. Su- support your local comic book shop. Yeah, I'd say my local one is like, it's my current happy place. Because I, I have uh, full-time school right now, working on my career shit. Uh, but the comic book store is like, that's... That's where I go if I need a little little morale boost, which is dangerous with your wallet, but um, it's a lot of fun. Uh, do you have any of the, like, if you had to recommend maybe one graphic novel? Ooh. Um, that, that you have enjoyed? Yeah. Yeah. I um, So I got into comics kind of with the angle that I loved, uh, just because of my Smallville obsession. I love Lex Luthor, and it's fun because there's, Smallville Lex is like very different from comic book Lex and um, comic book Lex is just more egomaniacal. He is obsessed with Superman. Um, it's like a le- like Smallville is just yeah, is. so easy to interpret a Clark Lex romance because they're always staring at each other and their friends and stuff. But really the the more obsessive relationship is the, the Clark and Lex in the comics because Lex is just you're like, yeah, oh, is- if you just stopped obsessing over Superman, you probably could have cured cancer like five times over by yeah. Alex. Um so I think uh hold on, what is it called? I got my box right here. My my short so Is it the Brian Azarello or That's a great one. I've mentioned that Brian Azarello's okay. uh The Man of Steel Lex Luthor Man of Steel. Yeah. The 
uh, art in that one is Lee Bermejo. He's amazing. Yes, that's uh, you can get that in trade form. It's a DC Black Label, which Black Label is like your fancy uh, primo shit. Yeah, and it's like usually like with Batman, like they won't um, certain titles. Historically, Batman because it's so dear to kids, I guess they don't like Batman doesn't say fuck and bitch and all the you like. But if you get a Black Label, he may well. And um, so there's it's more geared towards adults. Um, that's different though. I found from like, I'm reading some Green Lantern titles and, you know, people die and, um, they say you son of a bitch and all that stuff. So I'm like, oh, I'm figuring out like the differences, like between the titles and their, uh, audiences, I think can be a little bit different. Yeah. Um, yeah, that is interesting. Actually. I didn't know about that about Black Label. Um, yeah. One of my favorite Lex titles is Forever Evil. Um, yeah. it's, uh, the Justice League basically gets, uh, um, I don't know, they get sucked into some alternate world or I can't remember. They're basically, Justice League is unavailable. An alternate universe, Justice League called the Crime Syndicate, um, invades Earth and there's no Justice League. <laughs> they call League. themselves the Crime Syndicate? I, I know. <laughs> yeah, I think they do, which is just a bad a, guy group. Silly writing, just. Yeah. pure pure silly comic book writing um and there's no justice league around to protect the world so lex luther says uh i guess i'll have to do it he teams up with like catwoman captain cold black adam bizarro he's created bizarro uh, one of lex's obsessions you just get different versions of like him creating yeah. superboy for instance which is connor <laughs> and connor is a genetic hybrid of lex and superman so typically lex is stealing their son he is their love child lex generally steals the dna that's how it goes and creates connor but he also in this one he steals superman's dna and he gets like this half-baked superman (laughs) subject b zero who is of course bizarro and yeah black manta and cheetah and all the villains basically have to and batman is actually bruce ends up somehow uh still survived on earth he he doesn't get banished to wherever the justice league is but this motley crew of villains has to save the world um and it's a lot of fun so forever you yeah, will awesome premise yeah that ends up uh continuing on with the like a maze of virus and then you get into the dark side war so as i think it's all kind of the winding up and down of the new 52 okay uh before the rebirth yeah which we don't need to explain because it's confusing stupid (laughs) stupid is the correct answer but yeah forever evil is fun so if you like lex check out forever evil yeah i would just say i guess always my top recommendation is jed winnick's under the red hood is how it's published uh in the trade paperback form it's an awesome story if you are familiar with jason todd you already know it but it's still even if you've seen the um animated movie which is excellent you should still read it because there are like, there's a little more black mask and there are little differences. Some of them good and some of them less good. But, um, the reason why the movie's so good is because Jed Winnick adapted his own graphic novel to the screenplay. And so he's responsible for the writing of both of them. And that's why they're, that's why it was so good. And it wasn't botched because he was, had a heavy creative influence in it. Um, so under the red hood would be my top one. And I was just going to also say, Brian Miller's um, Batgirl. It's the Stephanie Brown Batgirl. It's like a lot of fun. It's funny and it's got some heart to it. There's two two trade paperbacks available if you can get a 
if you can get a hold of them. I think the first volume isn't in print anymore, but you you might be able to find a, a used copy somewhere. It's a little harder to find. You could probably find some free copies uh, digital online. Yeah, so that that's another great series. And oh, well, and for Green Lantern, if you're interested in Green Lantern, you should just check out Peter Tomasi's. There's a couple series, but um, Green Lantern Corps. And then his Emerald Warriors is a really fun Guy Gardner arc as well. Nice. Had to re- rein myself in there a little bit. It's tough, man. Yeah, I read too too many comics, but it's a fun escapist world where you don't have to think about careers or jobs mm-hmm. or emails. Yep. 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 Oh man. Well, I think we'll probably wrap it up there. But um, yeah. Um, what do I want to say? Um, I I feel like the last few episodes I've been like oh more episodes coming down the pipe and I just haven't done anything but um, I've got an interview hopefully in the pipeline with an author called Muse Away Uh, Muse has been around a long time she's probably the most active um, person in fandom that I know she runs a discord called hashtag fic WIP fic whip and she's just always putting on challenges always um just bolstering community and you know just doing fests and prompts and she is one of those people that just keeps fandom alive so i'm gonna be really excited to talk to her so stay tuned for that and um there's another episode that's uh, a little bit further out from that that might be me and laura talking to an author that we both love um kind of in a style that we talked to um Gia a few episodes oh, yeah. back where where we're probably just going to be reading uh, Q&A and workshopping one of this author's fix. So I won't spoil it. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, in this very extended season two of talking fanfic, um, you know, the episodes come when they come is what I say. That's okay. That's absolutely okay to me. It's better than like putting that stuff out just to put it out, you know? Yes. Um, that's what I like to think. It makes me cool. <laughs> But, um, yeah, I think that'll do it. Um, Laura, a.k.a. At Least 51, thanks for talking fanfic with me today. Uh, always a pleasure to be here for our many, many viewers. Or, <laughs> no, listeners, whatever. The, the <laughs> two of them shall be me and you. Thank you both. Thank us both. Hi, Mom. <laughs> Hi, Mom. All right. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.